Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. I hope you had a great weekend and welcome to Money Talk for Monday the 4th of December. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell pushed back on Friday against speculation that the Fed had won its fight against inflation. In a speech on Friday, Mr Powell indicated that it was too soon to rule out further rate rises or to start discussing cuts. However, those remarks were offset by some more dovish statements. He said the policy rate was well into restrictive territory and that the US is on the path to 2% inflation without large job losses. Activity in China's manufacturing sector unexpectedly returned to expansion in November. A Kaishin-sponsored survey of purchasing managers at private companies showed Friday. The Kaishin China General Manufacturing PMI rose to 50.7 in November from 49.5 in October. That was well above economists' forecasts of 49.8. It was the highest reading since August. Domestic demand strengthened, but overseas orders contracted for a fifth straight month. The Biden administration on Friday issued long-awaited guidance that will limit Chinese content in batteries, eligible for electric vehicle tax credits starting next year. The US Treasury announced on Friday that from next month, no US manufactured EVs that include Chinese-made battery components will be eligible for the full subsidies offered by President Joe Biden's $370 billion landmark climate law. Nor will EVs qualify for the Inflation Reduction Act incentives if they are made by companies with significant ties to the Chinese government or produced with a licensing agreement with a China-based or Beijing-controlled operator. Chinese shares are lagging behind their global peers, hampered by concerns over the economic slowdown. In Hong Kong Friday, stocks dropped to the lowest level in nearly 13 months, and China's benchmark CSI 300 index on Friday closed at its lowest level in more than a month. Chinese stocks rebounded Friday afternoon following a report that a state institution bought exchange-traded funds in what would be the latest policy effort to bolster markets. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management and Simon Kavanagh, partner at BDA Partners. Providing a view from mainland China will be Yan'an Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Facebook, my page is Peter Lewis Money Talk. And on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. On Wall Street Friday, US stocks extended their November rally into the first day of trading for December. The S&P 500 closed up 0.6% at 4,596. That's a 20-month high. The Nasdaq Composites rose 0.6% on Friday to a four-month high of 14,305. The Dow rose 295 points, or 0.8%, to close out the week at 35,951. The Dow added 2.4% for the week, notching a fifth weekly gain to mark its longest winning streak since late 2021. And the Dow is off just 1.5% now from its all-time high. After Jerome Powell's remarks, two-year Treasury yields dropped 15 basis points to 4.55%, their lowest since early June. Benchmark 10-year yields slipped 13 basis points to 4.21%, their weakest since September. And traders in federal funds futures markets are now seeing about a two-thirds chance of the Fed reducing rates as early as March 2024, which was up from about 20% odds a week ago. 
The US dollar extended its losses for a third straight week, the longest streak since June. The yen was the G10 outperformer, rising 0.9% on the day to 146.81 yen per dollar. Gold briefly briefly rose above its all-time high of $2,075 an ounce, which was set in August 2020, before closing 1.7% higher at $2,071 an ounce. Oil prices extended their sharp drop from the prior day, following a delayed OPEC Plus meeting, which sowed confusion among traders. The cartel promised further cuts to output, but was hazy on the details, and the lack of a concluding press conference and final communique left the market puzzled. Brent crude oil Friday erased initial gains to settle 2.4% lower at $78.88 a barrel. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index fell 213 points. That's 1.2% to 16,830 at the close of Friday trading, the lowest since November the 10th last year. The Hang Seng Index has slumped for four straight months now since July and has dropped nearly 15% this year, the worst performer among over 90 major global stock indices. The tech index dropped 1.8%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite ended 0.1% higher at 3,032, bouncing back from a 0.6% slide earlier in the day. Futures markets pointing to a rise of about half a percent for the Hang Seng at the open. Looks like it's going to start the day around about 16,915. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Monday morning guests. We have with us Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. And also joining us, Simon Kavanagh, partner at BDA Partners. Welcome back, Simon. Morning, Peter. Now, Jerome Powell pushed back on Friday against speculation that the Federal Reserve had won its fight against inflation, as futures markets anticipate that the U.S. central bank could start cutting interest rates as early as next March. In a speech on Friday, Mr. Powell indicated that it was too soon to rule out further rate rises or to start discussing cuts. He said it would be premature to conclude with confidence that we have achieved a sufficiently restrictive stance or to speculate on when policy might ease. We're prepared to tighten policy further if it becomes appropriate to do so, he said. However, those remarks were offset by some more dovish statements. He said the strong actions we have taken have moved our policy rates well into restrictive territory, meaning that tight monetary policy is putting downward pressure on economic activity and inflation. Monetary policy is thought to affect economic conditions with a lag, he said, and the full effects of our tightening have likely not yet been felt. Mr. Powell said that the U.S. is on the path to 2% inflation without large job losses, i.e. a soft landing. And traders took the remarks optimistically. They felt Mr. Powell hadn't been hawkish enough. And traders in federal fund futures markets now see about a two-thirds chance of the Fed reducing rates as early as March 2024, which is up from about 20% a week ago. And traders also have five 25 basis point rate cuts priced in for 2024, compared with three um, just a week ago. So, Alex, once again, the market and the Fed are disagreeing. Who's going to be right here? I don't know, actually. I think uh, the market actually is super optimistic right now. Uh, and I think uh, um, they are very confident that the, um, the, the the inflation will be contained soon and the uh, real interest rate will become too high. So they think uh, the Fed actually will have a very high chance to avoid rate cuts. But uh, in the meantime, I think data does not suggest so. And so... Um, so that's a little bit um, too much ahead, but I think uh, right now the momentum is too strong. 
You know, the data is showing a slowdown, isn't it, in the US economy, but not a dramatic slowdown that's going to tip it into recession by the looks of it. Right. I think uh, at least we need to see the inflation to be contained and uh, and, and and slow down a lot uh, on that front, at least. So uh, right now it's a little bit uh, too, 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 too soon. What, what do you think? So, I mean, can the market be right here about five rate cuts when core inflation is still 4%? Okay, it's come down a lot, but it's still double the Fed's target. I think, I mean, five rate cuts of a quarter each over the course of next year, I mean, possibly, but it'll be, in my view, weighted far more towards the end of 2024. I think the the Fed is on the right track. Um, the economy is sort of softening, but we're still yet to see significant uptick in unemployment that would indicate that really sort of inflation will be under control. And it takes quite a large number of um, monthly declines in sort of inflation to get you below that annualized 2% that they're targeting. Mm. So, I mean, Bill Ackman um, rather publicly a few days ago said he thought there was going to be the first cut in the first quarter of next year. I think that really is quite optimistic because the Fed... I'm certainly in agreement that the rate rises have finished, um, but I think the Fed is going to sit and um, watch and will want several consecutive months of um, soft, weak data before it even thinks about cutting. Because it can cut far faster, really, than it's able to raise. And psychologically, once they start cutting, that'll have a very big impact. Its window to cut rates next year is not particularly large, is it? Because it's going to want to see more data first before it does so. And I presume it doesn't want to leave it too late with an election um, coming up. So it hasn't got a big window to, to do those cuts. I, I would hope that uh, Jerome Powell doesn't really take the election into account and he focuses on the economy. Um, and to be honest, Biden is not really getting the positive uplift um, that you would expect an incumbent president to get from an economy that's actually managed itself really very well through um, pretty volatile conditions. And why is that? Well, Americans clearly don't feel that good about the economy, despite the data showing inflation coming down, uh, no recession in sight. What, what is it that's making sort of Americans gloomy? Oh, I don't think they're necessarily gloomy. I mean, they, they haven't started losing their jobs in large numbers yet. What they're just not doing is um, giving... Biden, um, in particular, any credit for it. Mm. Well, Alex, why do you think that is? I mean, there, you know, inflation's trending in the right direction. The economy's held up, um, but they're certainly not giving um, the, the the incumbent president and his party any credit for that. Well, I think uh, this is quite natural uh, because they, if, if 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 the government is doing okay, I don't think that people would give credit to the government. Give credit to themselves, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Are they still focused on the fact that although inflation is coming down, you get all this data that says inflation uh, is slowing compared to last month. The fact of the matter is prices are still going up, aren't they? And they're just not going up as fast as they were. So you're paying, um, you know, grocery prices this year have risen 25% uh, in the United States. Reds are roughly 20% higher. I presume they notice that um, and don't take so much notice of these month-to-month figures. Yeah, of course. I think uh, the probably uh, the inflation would, would come down soon because um, I think many forces actually are deflationary. But I think the market actually is, uh, is, uh, is too quick in discounting that to come in, into play. And the data actually, I think, would need some time to come down. Mm. Yeah. If, if, we are, if the markets are right, 
and we're going to get 125 basis points or more of rate cuts next year. That is a large amount of cuts, isn't it? So it, it what's going to cause that? It seems to me it won't just be a, a gradual slide in inflation down to 2%. To get that sort of cut in interest rates in the space of a year, you, you're either going to have to have a severe recession or a financial crisis of some sort. I think at least you need to see the, the, the economy to get worse first. So uh, we need to see a, a, a slowdown at least in, in many activities. So uh, we need to see unemployment go up and probably that probably may be the most important thing uh, for them to cut rates. What, what do you think, Simon? Can we get 125 basis points of rate cuts? Normally, when you start seeing things of that magnitude, it's because we're either in a recession or a recession is looming or there's some sort of financial crisis. Well, I mean, if you broke it down, you could just do the last five months of 2024, a quarter basis point cut in each of those, um, which means, I mean, we've got a long, that would mean another sort of eight months, seven, eight months of just rates staying exactly where they are, um, which is a pretty long time for them to start sort of biting into the economy. Um, mm. I, I think I think five, uh, my personal view is that five um, base rate cuts or one and a quarter percent is pretty aggressive for next year. Um, I do think they will start cutting, um, but I think it'll be much more weighted towards the end of the year. And it's not necessarily going to necessitate a big um, sort of shock, but it just needs to needs the Fed to see that the economy is is softening. It is on target for that 2%. And there's that very delicate balancing act of when, when do they start to cut so that they can get down to their mean um, normalized sort of level where they want to stick at um, without pushing the economy into recession. And it may just sort of bounce in and out, sort of a quarter down, quarter up. Um, that'll be a pretty good result, I think. And where is that mean normalized level? How, how low do you think rates could go? Clearly, they're not going to go down to zero again, are they? No, I think, I mean, round about 3%. Um, right. I think that's so that's be the fairly, new normal. Well, <laughs> we'll see when we get there. Um, but certainly, um, hopefully, we look back on this period and it, it's a blip in terms mm. of higher interest rates just to try and fix things and get everything back on track after the very large um, increase in money supply over the last couple of years. Do, do you want to hazard a guess, Alex, as to how low you think rates could go? Where's the new normal going to be? I think probably off of three, three, four, three, three point something percent, probably. Yeah. Mm. Well, so if we're going to see this softening in economic data, what does that mean for profits? It's going to have an impact on profits, isn't it, and on, on, on the markets? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, we would see some decline in certain sectors. But I think uh, people are more bullish on the tech because uh, they probably weren't affected by the slowdown activities. And also they, uh, the sector will be more consolidated, I think. So that's why I think people are so bullish on tech mm. uh, uh, in, the, in the US right now. I'm wondering, you know, if we, we do start to see this cut in rates. No, no, we're in this period now where the Fed is on pause. And historically, that interval between the last rate hike and the first rate cut, it's normally quite favourable for risk assets, isn't it? Which is exactly what we're seeing at the moment. But then you see when the cut actually occurs, quite often we've seen declines in, uh, in stocks of, you know, anywhere between 10 to 30% on, on average, because people start questioning, well, why is the Fed cutting rates? Is it, is it panicking? Do you think we're, we're going to see the same sort of playbook again? I think probably because right now uh, it depends. Actually, it depends a lot on uh, the rise right now. So if we get to a 
higher level, then of course the risk of a pullback uh, is a higher when the, when the Fed start to cut rates. So I think uh, probably uh, at that time, those companies uh, within the Russell 2000 space would be more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Because right now, uh, actually, they are just uh, going up on catch-up buying, and and as you've said, uh, the the profit probably would be under pressure during the uh, slowdown period. So I think uh, uh, for the mid soil mid cap, probably they they would have a, a, a nice one right now, but uh, probably uh, they will start uh, pull back uh, later on. Simon, your your thoughts on on the markets? How this is all going to affect the markets if we do start to see a cut? Where, as I say, we're in this Goldilocks period at the moment, which could well give us the the, the traditional Santa Claus rally that everyone's looking forward to. But uh, is it going to get more tricky once the Fed does actually start cutting? Yeah, I think sort of historically, what we see is markets overcompensate. So they'll they'll get to a point where they're too high, and then when interest rates start being cut, which is what everyone will then say they've been waiting for, but then they go and interpret it, well, the Fed's cutting rates because the economy is weak, and then Mm -hmm. everyone starts to panic about how weak it is and um, start taking money off the table. So I think we will see some of that volatility. I mean, volatility itself at the moment is at an incredibly sort of low figure. The VIX, I think, was down at 12. So, um, yeah, that's a sort of, I think, a historic low. But what'll be interesting as well, we're now coming up to the end of the year. And I mean, as Alex says, sort of the Russell 2000, all these um, US corporates, they'll be sitting there doing their budgets for 2024, their CapEx plans, thinking about hiring, profitability for the year. And um, it'll be interesting to see how, because if they're slightly cautious or conservative, um, then we may start seeing um, employment unemployment numbers jump. Mm-hmm. And just if there's a fairly low capital expenditure and spending, um, that'll have a knock on effect in the economy that'll turn up pretty quickly. And we are seeing signs already, aren't we, of the job market slowing, not not drastically, but it, it is uh, slowing. The housing market also is slowing as well. So the signs are all there of a slowing US economy. I mean, at some point, the high interest rates have to start biting into consumer spending. Um, people can't continually sort of um, buy now, pay later, and put things on credit. Um, so that will start to to come in at some point. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to the China economy. Activity in China's manufacturing sector unexpectedly returned to expansion in November as domestic demand strengthened, although overseas orders contracted for a fifth straight month. The Kaishin China General Manufacturing PMI rose to 50.7 in November from 49.5 in October. That was well above what economists were forecasting of 49.8, and it was the highest reading uh, since August. But, Alex, this rather contrasts with the official PMI, doesn't it, which showed activity, uh, the larger state-owned firms contracting uh, for a second month. So how do we reconcile this? Well, I think uh, you should not pay too much attention to PMI. This is just a very big number. So I think uh, people probably tend to be a little bit optimistic in, 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 in their answering. So, so, so you think it's even worse than what the figures are saying? I think the figure probably overstay a little bit. Right. I think. So, so, so that is, uh, uh, I think, uh, something need to be cautious about. What do you think, Simon? There was some worrying data in the um, in the official PMI because in the uh, the non-manufacturing PMI, the services part of that has slipped into contraction. Now that was the bit that was really of the economy that was holding up, wasn't it? People, although they weren't buying goods, they were still going out to restaurants and cinemas and travelling. But that seems to have slipped into contraction as well now. 
And I think that would reflect what everyone sort of anecdotally says that they're seeing in the Chinese economy is weakness. It's consumers holding on to their money. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the two conflicting PMI figures, um, I mean, the official one, and if that's the one with um, the SOE waiting, um, and if that's coming out as negative, then, I mean, I'd agree with Alex, the responses are probably slightly over-optimistic. Um, we had that, there was that news last week that I think CICC, the investment bank, had an internal memo telling its staff that they weren't allowed to make negative comments about mm -hmm. the Chinese economy. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that'll be across the board. The SOEs themselves will not be standing up, sort of giving negative outlook if they have one. Mm. How, how do we get through all of this when, when you know, the data is clearly being sort of restricted? I mean, we're not getting all the employment data these days because we don't get the numbers on youth employment. Companies are being told to be optimistic. Um, analysts are being told not to be bearish. Um, where on earth do we get the information from about what is really going on in the Chinese economy and with Chinese companies? I th and I think that's very hard, and it'll be one of the reasons, the sort of lack of transparency and the lack of data will be one of the reasons why investors, sort of international investors, are pulling back from the um, Chinese market. Um, the, the economy is weak, but you can get around that with sort of transparency and clear poli policy decisions, and uh, everyone that has a, a pretty good view of what the next 12, 18 months will be, but at the moment, investors don't have that. Alex, is this something you're concerned about? Yeah, of course. I think the lack of transparency is a very key issue. So since you do not have the clear picture, then probably you will uh, tend to stay away from the market. Uh, mm. So that's why I think uh, this is a very key issue as well. Mm. And, and for, for next year, I mean, clearly we're going to make the 5% growth target this year, aren't we? But what do you think for, for next year? Is that going to be a struggle or do you think um, the, the economy is sort of stabilised? I think uh, the best scenario is that they stabilize at the current level, so uh, we will not have uh, much rebound because yeah. uh, the housing market actually will still be quite very bad, I think. And then um, we are seeing um, signs of slowdown in consumption already, so uh, fairly likely we probably um, would still be in the dojo in, in total for in China. There was a McKinsey survey last week of um, companies in mainland China in the retail space, and basically they're, they're not expecting any sharp uh, rebound in, uh, in consumer spending next year. Yeah, because uh, the key sectors in, in housing and manufacturing probably will still be under pressure. So I think uh, that will spill over to the local consumption. Simon, what are your thoughts for the economy next year? How do you feel about it? I think it'll remain weak. Um, absent any significant um, government policies to really sort of put a shot of adrenaline into the economy. I, I think it'll remain weak, it'll tick along, people will be cautious. Um, I, I mean, if they could do 5% again next year, I mean, I'd question whether it's really achieved 5% this year. Um, I mean, perhaps coming off the COVID constricted economy, but um, I, I really think growth is anemic at the moment and I expect it will be next year. Now, China recorded its first quarterly foreign direct investment deficit between July and September. Uh, the Peterson Institute for International Economics said foreign companies were not only withholding reinvestments, but were also divesting and repatriating um, funds. 
And there was also a survey by a central bank think tank of 22 public pension and sovereign wealth funds that manage about $4.3 trillion in assets between them. Not one of them reported a positive outlook for China's economy. They cited the regulatory environment and geopolitics among private factors dissuading them from investment. So, Alex, still no sign of foreigners uh, picking up and becoming more optimistic. And I presume this trend also of, of, uh, of quarterly deficits now in the FDI, that also poses a risk to the yuan, doesn't it? Yeah, I think uh, it will still remain the same because you need to give a uh, very clear outlook uh, for at least five to ten years for investors to be serious in putting the investment in China because we are not talking about stock trading. We are talking about uh, really uh, input into fixed investment and employment. So uh, you are not established. You are, you are not uh, withdrawing uh, easily. So in the future, so that's why I think uh, we they need a key outlook for for long term. But right now, China lacks that kind of transparency. So that's why I think people are pulling out. Mm. Simon, this is, um, is is a worry, isn't it? The the sort of the the rate in which the outflows are occurring at the moment. Yeah, I mean, FDI has only ever been a fairly small percentage of China GDP. But I mean, the overall picture is is worrying, and it's. I mean, it's a multitude of things. It's not just the weak economic environment itself, but it's the business environment in which uh, these multinationals find themselves operating and some of the recent crackdowns and investigations and um, sort of exit bans on businessmen and things have all hurt sentiment. Um, so while there will be, there will still, you'll be able to pull out um, individual investments uh, by companies and certainly in our business on our mergers and acquisitions side we are seeing an increase in inquiries from European corporates in particular looking at expanding but um, those investments are still sort of pretty small sub hundred million dollar kind of investments and the net sort of in aggregate um, our clients are still divesting more than investing in China. Are there any particular sectors that uh, your clients are interested in? No, not not in particular. Um, I think um, really it seems to be you need to have sort of internally within the corporations take a long-term, as Alex says, a really long-term outlook that China is a place that you want to be. And then it's a case of acquiring some of the smaller um, competition. But the M&A market in China is still sort of in its infancy. Um, mm. So the the dynamism that you see with sort of European and um, US um, medium-sized corporates uh, getting gobbled up or merging um, is still not there. So it's 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 a hard slog, but there are there are a handful of companies that are just looking at expanding, um, whether it's sort of on the chemical side or on the manufacturing side, um, less so on the consumer side, I would say, um, mm. because that tends to be domestic dominated. So if, if companies aren't going into China, uh, is there a good alternative in the, in the Asia region? I'm thinking maybe Japan, where we are seeing a pickup now, aren't we, in, in corporate governance, which is spurring M&A um, activity. Is that an option now? Is that becoming increasingly attractive for clients? I think, I mean, Japanese corporates, um, they are shaking themselves up a little bit, as they've been doing in Korea for a number of years. The markets still remain quite local um, in terms of Japanese corporates, preferred Japanese investors. Um, I think where you are getting quite a lot of uh, foreign direct investment is in Southeast Asia, Vietnam in particular, um, India, of course, with its sort of China plus one strategy um, has done incredibly well. And so there's the comparison on the... Um, the Indian stock market is trading at twice the levels of China. 
um, and that's just symptomatic of how positive everyone is about the Indian economy vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese one. Now, Alex, what do you make of these uh, latest uh, moves on the electric vehicle side by the by the US to try and limit Chinese content in batteries, which are eligible for these tax credits under uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and and also uh, some some of the other subsidies that, uh, that that the US is offering? Is this going to have an impact? Well, I think uh, yes, uh, because uh, the EVs. Of course, the Chinese EV exports are not too significant as compared to the local sales right now. But I think uh, they're, they're super competitive in terms of pricing and probably efficiency and everything, I think. So that's why I think US uh, think they would be a threat. So they would try to limit the growth. And what about the EU? They're also concerned about it as well, aren't they? We've got this summit on Thursday and Friday between the EU and China. Presumably EVs is going to be one of the top issues for, for European firms and the Chinese government as well because of the yeah. investigation. Of course, I think uh, because for EUs, uh, the, the auto sector is uh, very important for them as well. So I think uh, that's why they try to limit the competition from Chinese. Yeah, I think uh, that probably the solution would be... Uh, uh, they would introduce some European companies to become more cooperative with Chinese companies, probably, I think. I suppose, Simon, one of the fears of all this is it just makes investors more worried that the global economy is fracturing into US and China-aligned blocks. I, yes, but I mean, I, I'm hope, hoping that there's a sort of thawing of relations, particularly, I mean, as, as China sees the drop in FDI. Um, they're not going to want that to continue. The U.S. is not able to decouple itself uh, from China in any sort of um, short time frame. So what I think these EV regulations are, it's really just trying to buy the local. Um, I mean, we, we've had big issues in the U.S. these last few months with United Auto Workers going on strike, and um, that's had a lot of impacts. And as Alex says, I mean, there's a lot of large um, politically sort of powerful um, automotive automotive manufacturers in Europe as well. And really what the governments are just trying to do is buy them time to catch up because mm -hmm. China's stolen the march on everybody in terms of um, EV vehicles. And I mean, it's not just control of the battery supply chain um, and the investment that they put into that, but they're making really good um, EV cars. And what I expect is, I mean, these regulations in the US, yes, they're taking away the rebates from um, Chinese manufacturers, but I still expect that... Mm -hmm. um, Vehicles like uh, brands like BYD in particular will be able to sell into the U.S. market and even without the rebates, they will be competitive to the U.S. companies. Alex, I want to get your thoughts about the local markets here. Once again, it hasn't been a good week, wasn't a good month either, despite global markets having an excellent uh, November. Both stocks and bonds in the US were on a, on a tear, but Hong Kong shares, Hang Seng Index at a 13-month low, the CSI 300 on the mainland uh, at a one-month low, um, still doesn't look very good. But what are your thoughts going forward? I think it is really sad to see PDD to be the best Chinese stocks. So it is not in Hong Kong. First. Overtaken Alibaba. Yeah, and, and also I think uh, it also indicates that people are more confident about the operating environment for PDD than the operating environment of uh, Alibaba or JD. So that means uh, they think the uh, US may not try to limit the growth of PDD, but Chinese probably may not have uh, too much room for growth for those uh, mega techs. So that's the underlying assumptions mm. of the market right now. That's quite sad to see. So I think uh, probably Hong Kong will still remain weak because uh, in recent weeks, we have uh, PYD, PYD, 
Meituan and Alibaba down very sharply in a relatively short period of time. And these three stocks actually are fairly hot in Hong Kong. So I think that, that is very damaging to uh, con investor confidence. Mm. Because right now, if you think about Hong Kong market, then probably you think about the risk. Because uh, even blue chips like them can be down 15% uh, within two, 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 three days. So this makes people feel uh, uncomfortable. So I think uh, Hong Kong probably still will perform despite mm. the, the strength in uh, other markets because uh, I think that people would would have uh, would associate the the risk level with those companies' performance right now. And those three stocks that you mentioned, Alibaba, BYD, uh, Metran, have been the three stocks I've heard talked about the most over the last sort of couple of weeks or so. It seems to be the ones that are most damaging to confidence. Alibaba's share price hit a, a new all-time low. Uh, Metran, was it a 48-month low? I think it hit uh, last week. These, these three stocks seem to be having a lot of impact on the confidence of investors. Yeah, and of course, the pattern of the decline also uh, is, is, is important as well. Uh, Alibaba down a lot after the result announcement because uh, of the announcement that Ma, uh, Jack Ma may, may, may sell his, his stakes. And then Meituan down just before the result announcement and then down further after the result announcement. And then BYD basically down on no news, no, no, mm -hmm. no significant news. So people think about uh, the, 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 the ratio of smart money in Hong Kong because the turnover is so low that that means uh, the dumb money actually is not that, that much in Hong Kong. So probably you would be the, we would be the dumbers in the market. So, <laughs> so, the, 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 so you cannot compete with the smart money because they are so, they, 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 they are so smart. So I think that's why I think uh, this is quite damaging because uh, uh, as the market is uh, is 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 uh, having too low interest from retail, then the market is uh, would be the hardest to play. Mm. Simon, this has been um, widely debated on Chinese social media platforms over the last few days with people on the mainland saying that Hong Kong's becoming a relic of a financial centre because of the declines in the market, also the lack of IPOs. Now, we heard uh, John Lee and Christopher Hoy come out over the weekend and deny that quite vigorously, um, of course. But is it impacting you know, Hong Kong's status as a financial centre? No, I don't think it is. Um, I'm a little surprised, to be honest, by the sort of criticism coming from the mainland about Hong Kong. Um, but, I mean, Hong Kong's in the doldrums at the moment. I mean, interest rates are high. The economy's not um, doing very well. The stock market is is at a low, particularly compared to everywhere else. And until something changes, um, really confidence levels aren't going to return. Mm. Um, I mean, have we lost our position as an international financial centre? No, not at all. Um, and what we need in particular, uh, I, I'd really love to see more IPOs and particularly attracting um, a huge number of the uh, Chinese companies that are listed in the US. Um, really, I think, whether they're sort of given, whether the stock exchange here gives them um, preferential rates or treatment or something, it should really be attracting those back um, here to Hong Kong, which is where they're far more suited. And with the companies will then come the investors and the stock market itself with a little more liquidity and um, sort of a greater investor profile. I think that will then have a knock-on effect on the rest of the economy. And um, But then the government also needs to continue to make Hong Kong a sort of a good place to live from an international point of view.
Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts. Have a great week. You heard there Simon Kavanagh, who is partner at BDA Partners. Alex Wong, who's director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Dr. Yanan Wu, who is chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. Morning, Yanan. Good morning, Peter. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Let me ask you first of all about China's economy, because we have had quite a bit of data now in the form of the PMIs. The Kaishin survey was actually better uh, than expected. It rose to 50.7 in November, which is in uh, in expansion territory. But the official PMIs showed manufacturing and services also uh, in contraction. So what do we make to make of this conflicting data? Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, Caixin uh, PMI is uh, 50.7 and continuing expansion uh, stage. And that's, uh, you know, for medium and small enterprise. So that shows actually uh, medium, small enterprise uh, kind of revive after uh, previous month's, uh, you know, contraction. So it shows that indeed the uh, policy trying to drive the economic structure to transform from, you know, the uh, property-related uh, uh, fundamental, uh, you know, uh, development model to more uh, innovative, high-tech, uh, you know, the technology-driven. So that shows indeed some uh, appetite uh, in small and uh, enterprise for more innovation. If you look at uh, the high-tech manufacturing PMI was actually uh, 51.2%, uh, which is 2% higher than October and uh, also in expansion stage. And if you look at the uh, equipment, equipment manufacturing PMI was uh, 51.6% in November and again 0.9% higher than October. So those uh, you know, two sectors indeed showed the new momentum in the PMI or in the manufacturing side, uh, in the exp- uh, more to the high advanced technology uh, stage. Uh, of course, the uh, the uh, national uh, the PMI uh, continues to show uh, you know very slow recovery and still in the contraction stage. So that still shows uh, uh, related to the property and also the uh, construction, uh, the basically economic fundamentals still uh, weaker than seasonal adjusted. Mm. So that has to be a little bit concerned for continue to show the demand. Uh, lack of uh, demand is still the main, pro- main uh, pro- uh, problem or issue that economy face. And how is the consumer? It was noticeable that in the non-manufacturing PMI, the services components has fallen into contraction, which is things like restaurants and travel and, and cinema. The consumer overall still doesn't seem to be that positive, do they? Yes, uh, it's just there's your concern on the consumer side. I think the, the demand from the consumers is showing more rational and uh, you know, lack of enthusiasm after a golden week. Uh, for October, you know, even uh, during the golden week, uh, the revenue uh, of a consumption in uh, increase, but actually the average spending is still uh, not, uh, uh, you know, showing a significant uh, uh, momentum there. If you look at the double eleven so-called e-commerce uh, merchandiser, it's uh, uh, this year November. Uh, the e-commerce festival uh, on double eleven 
November 11 is only show a moderate 2.1 percent increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's already after a lot of uh, incentive policy, you know, to try to promote uh, more consumption. Uh, to revive the demand of uh, and the confidence of the uh, consumers, uh, but uh, the, the 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 increase still moderate. Showing, uh, I think, the consumer uh, still very uh, cautious about f- concern about future. So the consumption is not very uh, in the in in a strong momentum. Uh, even the traditional e-commerce is actually showing a decrease in the double eleven. Uh, festival, you know, minus one point one percent in the traditional e-commerce GMVs. So, on top of the consumer um, not feeling that confidence, we've got the manufacturing sector um, in in recession. At the same time, foreigners are, are, are moving money out of China. We've had the first ever quarterly deficit in foreign uh, direct investment, indicating rising capital outflow. Uh, pressures, the Peterson Institute for International Economics said foreign companies were not only withholding reinvestment, but were also divesting and repatriating funds. So what sort of extra pressure is that going to add to the Chinese uh, economy? Uh, yeah, if you look at the FDI, uh, you know, for the third quarter this year, it's actually the, FDI, uh, the uh, foreign direct investment reduced uh, by about uh, 11.8 billion US dollar, and that's uh, actually the first time it turns to negative since uh, the record started in 1998. Mm-hmm. And uh, the previous second quarter is already uh, the lowest value in his history. So, so indeed, uh, FDI is showing a net outflow. Uh, so far, as of the third quarter, so I think there's a uh, you know couple of re- uh, factors that influence in- indicate this such a net outflow. One, of course, is the U.S. dollar interest rate. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, dollar index still in high level, so the uh, the U.S. dollar flow still influx back to China, uh, back to U.S., so out of the emerging markets in general. So I think that's uh, in the general background. Secondly, uh, I think the uh, concern about U.S. US high rate and also, uh, you know, back to flight back to uh, quality still the moment, the sentiment of the market. That's why if you see the Hong Kong market, uh, Asia market, foreign out, uh, capital outflow still also uh, showing the, such a sentiment. So I think those are the two uh, probably major factors. And the other one, of course, is uh, the nearshore uh, supply chain, you know, or the China plus one supply chain change. Uh, so if you look at the Mexico and also uh, India's FDI actually both increase uh, significantly in the last two years. That shows, uh, you know, supply chain, you know, gradually move out of China. And move uh, to near shore like uh, uh, Mexico, or move to a new destination like India or Vietnam. So I think uh, the supply chain, uh, uh, you know, is trying to change or relocate out of China also contribute to the FDI, uh, FDI's outflows as well. Uh, but we have to see, you know, there's some uh, also Chinese company also set up their own uh, supply chain out of China, you know, uh, in Vietnam or uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, so that could also show uh, Chinese company also actively 
seeking and diversifying their own supply chain uh, resources, uh, you know, to other parts of the region as well. And of course, the United States is encouraging those supply chain moves. We saw on Friday, uh, long-awaited guidance Mm -hmm. going to try and limit China's role in batteries, which are eligible for electric vehicle tax credits starting next year. So any... um, any battery components are only going to be uh, allowed for subsidies under the Inflation Reduction Act and also the landmark uh, climate or, uh, law if they're not produced uh, by companies that are China-based. What sort of impact is this going to have? Yeah, the battery is one of the sector. I think the, the Department of Commerce are trying to impose uh, more restrictions uh, you know, given the COP28, uh, uh, you know, uh, summit coming up right now in uh, in uh, UAE, uh, so I think that uh, is shows uh, complicated signals. Uh, you know, on the one hand, every country, every country has to meet the target of 2030 or 2035. This uh, uh, the carbon uh, zero, uh, you know, policy. Uh, on the other hand, I think uh, this uh, decoupling still continues in how to, you know, diversify the supply chain on uh, also this political agenda uh, prior to the election. So I think there's a conflicting signal uh, here. Uh, but on the other hand, the, if you look at the chip industry as well, you know, so there's recently uh, department uh, uh, you know, uh, commerce secretary, uh, the Raimondo also talked to the, you know, quite a number of, uh, chip industry, uh, CEOs recently and, uh, want to come impose further sanctions, uh, on those, uh, uh, chip uh, companies who may, uh, you know, to adopt a, a simplified version of, uh, uh, chip, uh, export uh, to circumvent circumvent uh, recent uh, restriction policy uh, for example nevada uh, would like to you know probably plan to have a, a very customized made uh, chip for chinese companies and that gets a, a warning signal from uh, Raimondo secretary uh, so so i think uh, but uh, both uh, the uh, nevada or intel still concern you know the large consumer markets still in china so if there's further restriction on batteries or chips uh, can show uh, uh, a significant uh, downside pressure for the revenues for uh, u.s companies in these sectors so so we have to see uh, how to balance uh, this uh, uh, you know the policy change and also uh, you know the uh, how to revive the industry for the for this large consumption market, uh, not rather than finding alternatives. Uh, you know later on. And finally, let me quickly get your thoughts on the stock markets, because it hasn't been a good month, November, for Hong Kong and Chinese markets, despite elsewhere in the world, a very strong rally uh, in stocks and bonds, particularly in the US. But Chinese shares are very much lagged behind their global peers. The Hang Seng Index down at its lowest level now in almost 13 months. The CSI 300 of mainland stocks um, at a one-month low. Foreigners selling now for the fourth month in a row um, in November. Um, what what is the outlook? Do you think we're anywhere near a bottom and we can start being more positive? Because stocks on the mainland are very cheap, aren't they? And here in Hong Kong, if you look at the valuation, it's a, it's very very cheap. Uh, you know, uh, 
the the Hong Kong uh, stock market index, Hansen index, already back to two, you know, 25 years ago, uh, you know, around the late 1990s, and uh, the uh, Chinese CSI 300s uh, or the Shanghai Composite Index also fall to you know still very historical level. Uh, the Shanghai Composite still battling around 3,000 points, you know, after at almost two decades so i think uh, the i think the, the the bottom line is still one as i mentioned before the foreign capital out of uh, uh, hong kong market and asia market so there's still kind of decoupling you know on the financials uh, and also some lps who try to diversify out of uh, you know the greater china region so i think that's uh, still showing the momentum uh, besides this, uh, you know, generally U.S. hike hiking the rate, uh, flight to quality sentiment. Secondly, I think the uh, the, the I think the uh, fundamentals, uh, the confidence still lack of enough support, uh, especially on the property side and also the uh, the U.S. the Chinese uh, manufacturing hasn't shown a strong momentum. So all these contribute to lack of confidence uh, from the domestic. Uh, institutions as well, uh, but we have also see another sign that uh, uh, you know Chinese uh, uh, insurance company has a form alliance to set up a special fund uh, to uh, contribute to more equity exposure in the uh, in the fund uh, allocation. So that could show uh, support from a so-called national team. Uh, who, uh, which will come to support this market, uh, but uh, the general, uh, you know, sentiment for this year so far is those small caps. Uh, even the Beijing Stock uh, uh, Exchange has shown a rather very strong momentum uh, in the, these sectors. So. Uh, like a Caixin PMI indicate, uh, strong momentum in the small and the medium enterprise actually show uh, better recovery than the large enterprise. So that's why small caps, even the Beijing uh, Innovative's uh, uh, board, uh, the Beijing Stock Exchange has shown, uh, you know, 50 to 60 percent uh, index growth for the this year so far. So, so I think there's a difference. Verification of uh, the stock market as well. Uh, small caps wins this year, but a large cap still battling. You know, at a very low, low and but cheaper uh, PE. So for the next, uh, you know, for the new year, probably we'll see a reverse uh, for this such a style and sector. Uh, you know, verification uh, or correction for next year. Yanan, thank you very much indeed. Always very good to talk with you. Thank you, Peter. That's Yanan Wu, who is the chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, headquartered in Singapore. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Richard Harris, chief executive officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.